You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change Podcast by Nori, the world's first carbon removal marketplace. Here are your hosts, Ross Kenyon and Christoph Jospin. Hey, this is the Reversing Climate Change Podcast with Nori. I'm Ross Kenyon, producer Paul at the helm over there, Christoph Jospe with me as always. This is the second post-Reverse Palooza podcast. Christoph, introduce our guest. I'm still kind of basking in the Reverse Palooza glow. Feels great. I hope we're all feeling it. Sitting across from us is Gregory Landway. He is the founder and CEO of the Regen Network and also of TerraGenesis and really a leader in the field in the regenerative agriculture space and very much a fellow traveler in the blockchain world. So we're super stoked to have him here on the podcast, learn more about Regen Network and kind of how that integrates into what Nori is doing and how it aligns with reversing climate change, which we had the pleasure of first learning about Gregory when we were sadly not at DevCon in Mexico, but he was, and he presented Regen. And we're like, whoa, this is cool. How can we work with these guys? And funny enough, it just so happened that we were in New York City at a consensus gathering for the Blockchain for Social Impact Coalition. We had recently won a hackathon and we bumped into him there. And since then, we've been in touch and figuring out how to make all this fit together. So without any further ado, Gregory, we really like to start with your story. Because here you are on a very similar mission, but how did it all get started? That's a good question. I mean, I think in terms of this intersection between distributed ledger technology and regenerative agriculture, I was thinking a lot about a year ago as the crypto markets were starting to surge. I had made a couple investments earlier, you know, maybe a year before that, and I was taking paternity leave for my little guy who was born in April last year. And I was thinking a lot about what would it look like to have a currency that's backed by the living health of ecosystems in such a way that by transacting and participating in an economy and exchanging and increasing the value of that currency, you actually created some sort of synergy whereby the living health, the soil, the biodiversity, the water quality was also increased and augmented and grown. And wow, it seems like such a beautiful potential, right? And very counter to, I think, the way many people think of valuing ecosystem function or services, where you're sort of splicing or dividing up the quantifiable pieces in order to commodify it. I was really interested what would it look like to have kind of a holistic life currency of some sort. And drilling into this, and I got to talking to some people, and I happened to have some friends in pretty deep in the blockchain community, and I got really excited, and I was sort of breathlessly explaining to them what this could do and how it could change, and going in these iterations and cycles, as you guys know, you know, sort of digging into what might this look like. And what emerged was a really deep, awareness for me that at the end of the day, it's all about trust. And it's all about, can I trust as someone who's using this hypothetical cryptocurrency, that the health of that ecosystem of that living system did actually increase in some way? Or even is the peg between the currency and the health real? 
And then I started really digging in and already had a pretty solid understanding about monitoring ecosystems and agriculture through my livelihood for many years has been in the regenerative agriculture space, consulting and design and working with companies and monitoring metrics as a core part of that. So I had a pretty solid foundation, but I just really dove in to what would a decentralized approach look like to creating trust in ecological health in order to then be able to exchange with that. And since then, the positioning and utility of region network has evolved a lot. We are no longer sort of singularly focused on creating a cryptocurrency that's backed by ecological health. Instead, what's emerged is sort of the decentralized protocol layer that makes that kind of cryptocurrency possible, right? Not in an immediate, that's going to happen today, but in a it's actually something that could be conceptualized and executed by a team, whether it's us or other people. And I think that's where we're really so excited about Nori, because what we dug into and started working on, it sort of provides value to what you all are doing too. Because if we have this robust verification protocol layer, it just makes the Nori token more valuable and more wanted and more useful. And so I think that's why we're all sort of sitting here today after the amazing time together at Reversapalooza having a conversation by the waterfront here. I'm very curious. I'm sure the listeners are too with how a currency or a financial instrument can be backed by something like ecological health because we don't have very much experience with things being backed by anything. Certainly not. Currency is basically trust and it's trust in the state that issued it. And then besides that, I guess there's bank notes that were issued. Those are also a form of trust with the bank that issued them. There are things that are asset-backed, like the US dollar used to be gold-backed in various incarnations. But how could you back it with uh, ecological uh, health? I guess the, the thing of it being backed, there's always a, an assumption in there that you could eventually trade it in for that. So is that the wrong way of thinking about it? Do we just not have the language necessary to yeah. conceptualize this? Yeah, I think so. Yes, I think it would be impossible to back it in such a way that you can just go trade it in and get your like spoonful of soil carbon, <laughs> right? Because then you get to the place where you're dissecting the living health of the system instead of improving it. But I think what you were saying there is true. You know, the value of the US dollar, what does it represent? Anybody want to take a crack at that? Debt. So to me, the US dollar represents the continued ability for the US military to exercise hegemonic control. Excuse me, I'm bumbling <laughs> yeah. all over my <laughs> hegemony. Hegemony uh, dun, dun. over scarce natural resources, mostly oil. Totally. In order to back then a debt and asset. The dollar exists to enable the payment of income taxes, the resources of which are then used for activities like that. Yeah, I mean, it's complex. I would argue that the petrodollar is what makes the dollar worth anything. So its ability to exchange against petroleum reserves that are controlled nominally by the kind of, I don't know, cabal or whatever you want to say that is in kind of controls. And for better or worse, that is what it is. We have trust that that system is going to be around tomorrow. So if I give you a US dollar, that's still going to be true because a lot of things would have to change. Although, you know, those things may be changing right now. Lots of geopolitics and craziness happening. But for the time being, we all sort of think, yeah, it's probably going to continue playing that way. And even enemies and allies of that system think that it's going to continue 
trading that way. And so we all just sort of continue with the trust. And then we have this whole debt and asset system and taxation system and all these other things. I guess the hypothesis around starting to link trust and ecological health, I think that's the key, is I can't actually go get anything for my US dollar other than a service or a good. There's not gold. I can't dig around and get like a bullet or something that's like what my hypothesis is, is that creates the trust. You can pay your taxes though with it. Right. That's like the one main use case, Isn't that nice? right? Yeah. It's so useful. <laughs> that's the use case for the dollar. So useful. Well, those taxes are what maintain the system. Yeah. I would take it further and I would make the argument that virtually all of our social problems boil down to really bad monetary policy. Yeah. Well, I think that's the key and that's the beautiful potential that this new decentralized cryptocurrency revolution offers is for a lot of smart people to be thinking about monetary policy mm -hmm. and to have mechanisms to create financial instruments, instruments of exchange that have different rules and are backed by a different form of trust. And I think the most interesting and exciting thing is we've been talking about this the last couple of days at Reverse Palooza about monetary policy and how that affects the actions in the network. And when you look at the policies that are employed by the central banks of all of the developed countries in the world, they're all pretty much the same. Yeah. And there's very little experimentation happening. And so we're subject to the same bad situations like depressions and crashes and so on. The beauty of cryptocurrencies and blockchain applications and all these different companies that are starting up and trying to build new networks that are doing new and different things is they're all trying stuff that's slightly different. And so there are all sorts of new innovations that we can pick and choose and learn from the innovation on how to use money or currency rather, because they're sort of two different things is going to advance us much further and much faster than we ever could if we just sat around and waited for the old guys at the Federal yeah, Reserve to figure it out. We sort of got into this a little bit towards the end of the conference today in which Keith, who I think was your guest just immediately previous, listeners out there will have listened to him last week, right. was sort of saying, I'm not a libertarian, so I'm more socialist leaning and a lot of these you know, monitoring and the generation of trust, really, which is mm -hmm. getting back to it, is kind of the job of the government. We have a democratic process in place to do that. And I was sort of saying, yeah, and, you know, it behooves us to get out in front of this and be agile and experiment a bunch and create coalitions and try some things out because the conservative nature of the way that the government works, probably always and forever, but at least these days, is that it's sort of conserving the status quo and the interests that already have control. And we get to go out and do our best to create systems of trust and incentive that are firmly rooted in the health of, in our case, or sitting around this table, systems of trust and incentive that are firmly rooted in ecological health. So that's getting back to the original question, what does it mean to be backed by ecological health? I think it means that we trust that the stewards of our landscapes will continue having incentive to make those landscapes healthier and healthier so that we as members of the same living system, the same commons, the same planet earth, the same pale blue dot in the sky that has this amazing ocean and soils is going to get healthier and healthier and healthier. That's what it would be backed by, not the ability to sort of dissect that value 
into a, a fungible, exchangeable commodity per se, but that the stewardship will continue. Yeah, Wendell Berry quotes Aristotle as originating this dissection of nature and attributes a lot of mistakes to it. Yep. For better or worse, you can disagree with Wendell Berry. He at least keeps things interesting. I never know what to do with the man uh, if you've read him before. <laughs> I love Wendell Berry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if we could get Wendell Berry to give us some sort of at least a wink and a nod or, you know... Cool put kids it, would like us. Yeah. yeah, well, and it would mean a lot to us, but I have the idea that he probably wants nothing to do with the high-tech solutions represented by, <laughs> you know, the decentralized crypto revolution. But you got to say human scale more often. I don't know. I think there's things to like about it. And it's funny that, well, maybe Keith took that attitude with it or or whoever came in with that. What you said it was Keith that was talking about. The he was just sort of pointing out, I think, that the crypto community tends to be pretty libertarian. Okay. And part of the the walkthrough of you know what is a blockchain and how does it function and the thesis that it's an adversarial system that then generates some sort of coordinated trust mm -hmm. as the emergent property of everybody kind of competing with each other is a super libertarian sort of oh, it's, deep it's music to my ears yes, ideology yeah. and i have to say this will be kind of a fun maybe little playful argument like yeah, let's get into it i tend to think that libertarians are just half-assed anarchists who want to maintain police protection from their slaves. That's going to get real spicy. Yeah. I, 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 when people say stuff like that, I never know where Paul's going to end up on it. I don't disagree at all. So. Wait, no, say the joke, Ross. You know, you know what I'm talking about. There's an old joke in these circles. What's the difference between a libertarian and a narco-capitalist? The answer is about two weeks. <laughs> So another another important sort of libertarian concept, if you will, and you've said this word several times already, which is decentralized. Mm. Why does that matter for what you're talking about? How is that relevant to the blockchain? Again? Well, it's all about it's all fit in. It's all about trust, right? I think I was trying to hammer this point home harder during the conference, but let's just say if we're talking about trusting ecological outcomes and stewardship as the foundation for a new restorative regenerative economy, and a million different ways that we can create incentives and financial structures and other things that feed that. Trust has to be fundamental and we have to trust the stewardship and we have to trust the information and how we generated that information and the instruments that give us that. If we think about where the high-tech industry has gone in Silicon Valley and globally of late, we get interesting things like what happened with Facebook and Cambridge Analytica and the last election which is all about trust, remember. Elections and democratic process are all about, do I trust to exercise my vote, et cetera, et cetera. We have this mass manipulation of big data. And what we're talking about, if you want to trust what's happening across the globe, where a farmer is producing food for their community and a commodity market, and we're wanting to create incentives for them to also ensure that carbon is being sequestered into the landscape so that we can turn the tide on global warming, atmospheric carbon drawdown, et cetera. You know, we have to be able to trust the flows of data. That's fundamental. And when you have a large centralized big data monopoly that's generating the certifications of trust that are then being used as financial instruments on markets and things like that, if that's the case, then my thesis is, or the hypothesis that I'm working with is that actually if we have centralized control over the means to monitor and generate trust about what's happening on the earth, 
we will have things like Cambridge Analytica manipulating the election happen in agriculture, which means manipulating the very base layer of livelihood, food, and ecosystem health in order for the profit of a few people. And the fraud will be large and scary and disruptive. And thus, decentralization is sort of the antidote to that Orwellian vision. Yeah, I think that there's more to add to that. It's trust can be earned or gained in any number of ways. I think it's fair to say that even today, people still trust Facebook because they still use it. Mm -hmm. But have they earned it? Maybe, maybe not. That's up to the individual. But with a decentralized application, we can actually prove that. That's right. And that's what both of our organizations are so focused on is trying to figure out it's not that difficult to prove that once the data is stored in a digital form on the blockchain, that's easy. That, that's a trivial problem. That's what the blockchain solves for us. That's not an issue. The problem is how do we get the real world data into that digital form and prove that transfer? Right. Which in the blockchain world, there will be people listening who are jumping up and down and going, that's an Oracle problem. That's an <laughs> Oracle problem. Well, that may be true. It's also a people problem. What the distributed ledger really does here is it creates a directory whereby we can trace back who said what and have accountability. So Basically, like, at the end of the day. We like to define things. What's an Oracle? To me, what an Oracle is, is it's the interface between the real world and the blockchain. And so it's a device that we trust, or I suppose it could be a person as well, that we trust to create a signed, time-stamped attestation onto the blockchain that then other people are going to use for a variety of different purposes like smart contracts. I can give you a good example. There's a, a blockchain called Wager. They're a sports betting platform, and they enable people to make peer-to-peer -peer bets against each other on the outcome of a sporting match. And they have oracles that are incentivized to pull data from like ESPN.com and other sports stats websites and then upload that into the application that they've built. And so those people are supposed to maintain a certain amount of server uptime and that sort of thing. And they're paid by the network to do so. So the idea is that they're taking this data that exists somewhere else and they're getting it into this application so that they can do all the decentralized stuff. That's it. right. And in the context that we've been just swimming in and that's been amazing here at Reversa Palooza. We talk about sentinel farms, or in the farm OS language, regenerative farm observatories. These are places where you're creating sort of a highly monitored representative slice of land on a farm where different practices can then be extrapolated out for much less expensive remote sensing and modeling to be able to have trusted attestations on the blockchain to then be able to do things like make a nori coin or the carbon removal credit on the last episode keith called this precision agriculture is that the same thing well i think precision agriculture is this concept applied to extracting every penny from a landscape this is my bias shining through so probably there's a lot of people that it means something different but when i hear precision agriculture i think of Monsanto and John Deere and giant swaths of GMO monoculture maize in the Midwest. And they're collecting a, a whole lot of data and they're doing it in order to ensure that they can extract every last penny so that their very slim margins on those size of operations are maintained and they can keep the economic engine pumping. And so that's what they're concerned with. 
in terms of collecting data for precision agriculture. Interestingly enough, we're bringing to the field many of the same sensors and technologies, but we have a different aim here. The aim is not around the extraction of the value from the crop per se. It's around understanding how farmers can steward the holistic health of the farm itself, out of which the crop is the fruit that grows, right? And so it's a different mindset. Like Dorn said earlier today, Dorn Cox from FarmOS, who's a friend and a board member of Region Network, he said something I thought was really important, which is we need to shift how we're thinking about agriculture from agriculture as a business to agriculture as kind of the act of stewarding a living system of which we are a part that then becomes the foundation for many businesses to interact with. And so there's sort of like how we think about living or natural capital and stewarding that living or natural capital and how that is the future resource base upon which great business can thrive. To me, I think there's a really deep and fertile exploration, you know, speaking of libertarianism and anarchism between the relationship between the commons and the marketplace and how management of commons and management of markets are deeply intertwined and related. And there's not really sort of like a, there's a tragedy of both of them. <laughs> anyway, so I used to get really hand wavy and say that what I really love about decentralized applications is that you can solve the tragedy of the commons if you work at it hard enough. And I get hand wavy and I say you can solve the tragedy of the marketplace. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, did, did you ever read Eleanor Ostrom? No. Her and her husband died recently, but she's a Nobel laureate for economics. Her big thing was thinking beyond markets and states. The actual rules that are specific to the institution we're looking at are really more important than just, is this uh, privatized or a public thing? That's right. Because we consider what we're doing basically to be a public utility, essentially. Like what we're creating, it's like a subway or a road, except for it's a subway to regeneration instead of a subway to Manhattan. You know that's going to be the title of this, right? <laughs> <laughs> you can't just pitch them over the plate like that. <laughs> I'd like to take a step back because we're talking about regeneration and we're talking about kind of states or practices or degenerative applications or kind of forces which are causing real problems. So at TerraGenesis, you have all this experience where you've taken degraded lands and improved them. And mm -hmm. obviously that experience has informed Regen Network because yeah, that's right. it's totally aligned. And you mentioned some large companies which are causing problems and are squeezing farmers for every last penny. And, one and just to be clear, if anybody from Monsanto is listening, you know, happy to talk. Go ahead. Right. And we had someone from Monsanto at our event. And yeah. actually, the doors open for Monsanto to figure out how to insert themselves in this whole space and right. do the right thing, which I think there's ample room to do. So we've got farmers who... And can I add, they're going to want to. Like, companies want to be doing the right thing. It's really important to them that yeah. they are perceived as doing the right thing. And so it's just a matter of lining up those incentives. So yeah, yeah if they can make money doing the right thing and everyone loves them for it. I don't think there's any reason to uh, fight it. I guess the basic question is what what is sort of wrong with the world <laughs> that, that Regen Network effectively is fixing? And if you could paint a picture for us of how you see all this going down. I've got to check in with myself and see how esoteric I want to get on this. I'm going to check in with our PR staff and uh, <laughs> make sure we don't go off the rails here. <laughs> Nothing's wrong with the world, but there's plenty of 
opportunity for evolution and growth, always. My apologies, this is not a neatly packaged, like I'm just going to pitch region network here, but this is what I honestly think and believe in the way that I hold this question. So I think humans have an intrinsic capacity to understand and relate to the landscapes, the soil, the water, the air, the animals, and each other in a healthy and regenerative way. But that capacity is held in a cultural matrix of myth and song and story and practices and culture. And that that culture, through a variety of processes over the last at least 10,000 years, has been more or less ripped asunder and liquidated on the free market. And there may be ways that that's been a positive developmental you know, march towards manifest destiny and glory. And there may be ways that it's not been, it's probably both and. But my hypothesis and, and what I honestly think is that we have this intrinsic quality and capacity as humans to understand that what's good for the planet is good for us and to act accordingly. And like I said, we've lost that. At any given individual in our Western civilization, our society, doesn't normally exhibit those capacities day to day, myself included, because we're put into places where we're making decisions that are overwhelmingly complex and we make the best decisions we can in order to protect ourselves and our family and our businesses. Those don't necessarily line up with the health of the community and the planet. There's a vestigial capacity or organ of care for the earth that humans once had. And what Region Network is trying to do is create the technological training wheels to regrow our ability to have that capacity again. That's beautiful. I love that. Basically, in a nutshell, <laughs> that was a long nutshell. But what we're doing is creating the silicon, you know, neurological network of connectivity between the human economy and the greater than human world, the ecological systems of the world, so that we can deeply understand the consequences of our day-to-day -day decisions in farming and in oceans and in forestry and all of the other places, the nexus between humans and the rest of the world, so that that can then be fed up in a very practical way into the instruments of business and decision making in a liquid, rapid, frictionless way so that we can all have the capacity on our smartphones or in our day-to-day -day decision making to be accounting for the health of planet Earth. So it's like if it were easier for people to care for and provide stewardship for planet earth then they would do it i think so or i agree <laughs> it's like ease as an emergent property of how we relate yeah. to one another right mm -hmm. because i sort of started with this you know story of like hey i think we actually had this capacity once and some people on the planet still do but they live very different than sort of the modern lifestyle right right but we can regenerate that capacity now with technology that's the thesis, in a way that reconnects and creates a new sort of culture in which technology is in service to understanding and technology is in service to reconnection instead of technology just being in service to consumption and, mm -hmm. you know, distraction. We were talking about it earlier at the summit today that it's the difference between 
society that values or cares about or deals with scarcity as opposed to abundance. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think is beautiful about decentralized applications is that we're creating new abundance for all to share in. Yeah. But I mean, that's an interesting thing because to me, abundance emerges after you understand the limits of scarcity and then that's true. And then operate within yeah. those to uh-huh. grow the abundance. Right. Yes. Which is sort of it's a paradox. But yeah, I was going to say something similar. I was worried you're getting into post scarcity territory yeah. and I was going to finger wag at you. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but yeah, I'm sensible. It's abstract. This is a weird concept. And if you're not like deep into thinking about this, this probably doesn't make sense to you listening right now. Let's make it more practical. What is Regen working on right now? I'm sure the listeners are sort of familiar with the Nori tech stack and we sort of fit right in there. And what we're working on is high quality, inexpensive, decentralized verification of ecological outcomes that can be used to do things like improve the quality and assuredness of a carbon removal credit that that carbon has in fact been sunk into the soil and that the farmer is enjoying the benefits of the increase in soil health. That's a very practical way that we're grounding this. What we've found is that there's a disaggregated and kind of messy science of agricultural monitoring at the moment. And there's lots of little silos of models and data and none of it really talks to each other. And some institutions and organizations have money and they sort of work to aggregate some of that data. But no one is working on sort of systemically overhauling and creating kind of a planetary protocol for being able to interoperate with all of the different data sources and then incentivize new data sources in order to hone in the quality of our knowing and our understanding about ecosystems. That's what Region Network is doing. We're working on like that protocol layer of information about Earth. The use case between Nori and Region and how we kind of complement each other really well makes a lot of sense. What other sorts of complementary partners have you envisioned or or are there? Others? Well, yeah, supply chain applications are numerous. So there's a lot of people working on just chain of custody blockchain applications so that you can get data about transactions and who did what, but then you need to be able to track that back to the earth and what's happening on the earth and be able to trace that sort of either positive or negative impact from that stream of transactions. So there's beautiful plugins and, you know, Savory's land to market program is an example of a place we're really excited to dig in with Savory and they're really great friends of ours and we really respect their work. So that's another place where we're really excited. FarmOS, which does decision-making tools for farmers where they're basically creating operating systems whereby farmers are monitoring their own farms, not to be able to prove that they've sequestered carbon, but to be able to make better management decisions. And it just so happens you could also query that data and make claims on ecosystem services and functions. So that's another example of a group that we're really excited to be partnering with and where there's real world application right now. The main areas where there's sort of clear market pull for what we're doing, it rests in the smart contracting layer of what we're doing. We have these ecological state protocols that can bring data forward and model it and then say this happened or this didn't happen that can then move up into a smart contract that can say like in the land to market example 
I envision a smart contract in which a customer can say, I'm going to pay five cents more because the regenerative outcome is on the package. And I'm entering into that smart contract with the company for the next year because I really believe that that needs to happen. Or there's a smart contracting framework in which traders in New York City could buy futures on the soil carbon sequestration potential of the Midwest, because we could create a smart contracting framework about that and have the models and all these other things. You know, and so that's where there's all this excitement. I was recently um, researching the monetary value of planet Earth. Have you guys ever done that before? Can't say that I have. <laughs> there's some pretty wild stuff out there. Like are, are you talking about trying to value everything that exists? And gajillions of dollars. <laughs> I, I just value everything in some total uh, yeah, like, Earth. Yeah. I, I have seen stuff like that and it's difficult. And I think if you look at from a traditional financial asset sort of perspective, the derivatives of everything are like vastly dwarf anything else. Um, it's but, infinite, I'm sure. Yeah. It's, inf it's, and, and it's, it's priceless, impossible it to turns calculate. out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Long story short, it's priceless. Uh -huh. But the derivatives, the fruit, the emergent properties, and you know, I'm an ecologist and I'm a systems thinker, so I think I would say it's the emergent property that you could value, right? It's the surplus that's created by the healthy living system. So the food and ag industry in 2018 is estimated to be $8.1 trillion. It's really large. It's huge. So if you combine that with forestry and fisheries, ocean, I think fisheries may be included in that food and ag, I'm not sure. We're talking about definitely upward beyond $10 trillion. Certainly. And then if you think about the intrinsic value of all of the ecosystem functions that are operating, I mean, so we're talking about from the financial perspective, maybe $20 trillion market that we're sort of like tiptoeing into and thinking, how can high quality data and open protocols and a decentralized, tokenized system incentivize and create more disintermediated and liquid exchange that increases the health of the systems that are creating those markets. You're just throwing all the right words out there. Um, <laughs> I want to pick up another word you used, which I think is a really important one and kind of key to why why blockchain for all this, mm -hmm. which was interoperability. Yeah. Why does that matter? And how could that work? I wish I could channel our CTO, Aaron, who's brilliant and really been digging in on that front. I mean, there's some way smarter people than I am thinking about interoperability between blockchains. And I think it's a falsity to say like blockchain equals interoperability because you can have blockchains that don't talk to each other. That happens a lot right now. <laughs> Most of them. And you can have interoperability without blockchains. Correct. So what needs to be true in order for interoperability to exist? There has to be either A, a standard, like a standard logic and schema, like, you know, we all speaking English right now, we have a common language, we can communicate with one another, we can make deals, we can tell stories, you know, the same is true, both on the language, but also on how we structure data. So either that, or you need sort of like a universal Rosetta Stone approach, where you're considering that there's going to be a million different ways of doing things in a million different languages, but somehow you figure out how to translate all of them. 
right? And that's where there's projects like Cosmos and Polkadot mm -hmm. that are sort of working on that level. The tack that we've taken is, okay, that's great. They're working on that. Brilliant. We want to understand what would a common schema for data and ecological protocols and smart contracting look like that would be the most effective state-of-the-art language for running all of those systems that when it's operational, everybody's going to go, wow, that's really great. And then look at the translation points in order to pull things because not everybody's going to want to jump on. So then after we create that, we can look at sort of building the bridges with other data silos to run through that. So that's the short answer. The long answer is, you know, read the white paper and, and upcoming, we have a paper coming out on the series language. So we're actually working on a new language, a new programming language that will basically be ecological data domain specific. You call it series? As series. The Roman uh -huh. goddess, not oh, with um, a C. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Series. Series. Our team pronounces it both ways. <laughs> so that, that hegemony just getting you all day long. <laughs> Talk to us about your team. It's the Regen Network that all around the world decentralized. We're a distributed, distributed decentralized team. Yeah. We're actually working on spending a lot more time together. Yeah. There's, I think, eight of us working full time right now, three developers. I mean, I sort of dip my toes into that world and guiding from the sort of protocol perspective because I do a lot of work in agro ecosystems and monitoring and things like that. So I'm sort of pretty involved in those conversations, but I'm not a developer myself. We have sort of a chief science officer who's really managing the protocol development and understanding the variety of different monitoring and protocol systems that are out there, verification methodologies, new technologies that are out there, etc. And, you know, we have the usual branding and marketing and folks who are helping us communicate the message. And actually, one of the things that I'd love to talk about with Region Network is our governance model, which I think is really interesting. So we've decided after a lot of scratching our heads to not go with A, an existing public blockchain like Ethereum, because we really feel like we need to have kind of a domain specific. We're going to drill in and work on all of the challenges in ecological data and figure that out and then be able to invite people to use and basically govern that chain, all of the appropriate stakeholders. And so we've created a consortium model. I know there's some other folks doing it. Most of the consortiums out there, though, are private, like bank consortiums that are sort of running private blockchains. And what we're doing is sort of a public, private, hybrid, and proof of authority, proof of stake hybrid, in which we have a limited number of validator nodes so we can keep things quick, but we can also keep them decentralized and trusted. And we can basically invite all the appropriate academic and science institutions, companies, even governments to basically sit in the consortium and have a vote on the state of the blockchain. And in so doing, we feel like we have the opportunity to create kind of the ecological ledger and smart contracting framework so that there is that kind of interoperability. And yeah, we're very excited about that and very excited about it because it sort of embodies what I was saying earlier. It's, so it's a public utility. 
So if it's a public utility, you want the appropriate stakeholders to be governing it. Absolutely. And have that sense of ownership of it. And yeah. I think that's one of the beautiful things with these sorts of consensus models. I'm trying to wrap my head around. I wonder if maybe this model is maybe just inappropriate for this new tech because a utility, they're classically like you can't exclude people from them, right? No one wants a million different poles for power lines going up. But it seems like the structure that everyone gravitates to in the blockchain space is that secession is allowed, but it's all ruled by autocrats. Mm-hmm. Like Vitalik calls the shots with Ethereum. And sure, there's there's people that are at the top, but it's pretty much run by uh, a couple of people. Unless the entire community could hard fork off or stage a rebellion. But that's kind of how it is for many of these projects. There's like a boy genius and mm-hmm. the crew around there. I don't know. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Like, is a utility the correct way to think about it or my? I-, I do understand what you're saying. I, I would disagree with uh, Vitalik in the Ethereum model specifically. Uh, in fact, he goes way out of his way to try to remove any power and sway that he might hold over the community. I think Ethereum is one of the interesting ones in that the issue I see here is that the networks that we're talking about, when they initially start out, of course, the founders of it are going to be in the most control when they're using a consensus mechanism like that. Mm-hmm. And the only way to move beyond that is for it to get large enough where it is actually decentralized. Mm-hmm. This stuff just hasn't been going on long enough, really, for anyone to get that far. I think Ethereum is the furthest along. Bitcoin is also, but it's also completely broken in other ways. So I don't yeah. know if that's a fair example either. They're, they're sort of unique and on their own little island. The strategy right now is just do the best you can and time will tell and then mm-hmm. be able to adapt yeah, we'll as, as we learn more because no one really knows yet which way is most effective. And there is no like true most effective. It's going to be most effective by what criteria. These are all closest to commons, it seems like. That's how you say And by public, they're permissionless. You can just join or you can quit. You can hard fork off. Right. Whatever. And we don't have a permissionless blockchain solution. Oh, that's right. Okay. Interesting. Okay, I'm just trying to wrap my head around exactly what you're describing. We have an open permissioned blockchain Uh, in which there is a clear process for people to join the consortium, Mm -hmm. but it's a permissioned blockchain. I like that. I think that that's really useful for getting parties interested who are otherwise concerned about going totally open source, totally free, totally decentralized on these new networks and getting participants like you talked about $8.1 trillion in food and agriculture, like there are some big players in there and you want to get them involved in this. Yeah, and they need to know that they have and what we're building is they could become a consortium member and they could run region network as their, you know, agricultural data blockchain and smart contracting framework. And it could be a complete black box for everyone else. Mm-hmm. The only thing that people would see is the attestations on the blockchain that they're choosing to make public about outcomes or whatever else they need to use for smart contracts. Alternatively, we are working and have relationships with the open source and open data movement. So we'll be running everything in an open way and the foundation will be investing huge amounts of money and time into open protocols because we actually think that will be more competitive and more interesting and more useful. But we want to be able to run both parallel and give people the choice because, you know, we were sort of digging into this conversation a little bit today with the open source panel at Palooza, where just the distinction between open source, which you're talking about the code, right? The how you build things and how you know it, how it's working and open data. 
Mm-hmm. And those are not necessarily the same thing. And I would add a third, which is open transparency mm-hmm. about your operations and the way yeah. that you're going about. You can be governance, yes, uh-huh. decision making. We're operating an open governance, like a transparent governance system, but a you know permissioned data system in which you choose what you share and how and with whom, and open source code and blockchain. You know, all the source code is all open. If somebody wanted to just clone it. They could and audit it exactly, and it, the auditing is the key, mm-hmm. right? But also, if our thesis is incorrect, but there's a bunch of good things about what we're doing, people should be able to fork it and create something that has a better governance model or a better incentive model or whatever it is. That's an important part of the decentralized revolution, I think. So, saving a tough question for the end. Oh, great. Oh, I feel like these have yeah. all been kind of tough questions. Yeah, <laughs> it's, we've we've gone deep, but uh, you're a farmer, correct? I am. And you probably know other farmers. I do. I want you to imagine that I'm also a farmer and I am the most anti-technology, like don't even talk to me about blockchain. I don't trust cryptocurrencies. This whole thing is a scam. Yeah. Imagine you like a Mennonite beard. Mennonite beard. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Out in rural Pennsylvania. Sure. Sure. All of that. Convince me why I should care about region network. I mean, first off, I probably don't want to convince you. <laughs> that was a great episode. Thanks so much okay. for being here. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll give it a try. I mean, my job isn't to convince anyone, really. And and there's going to be, you know, those recalcitrant folks, they have every right to distrust technology. And a lot of times I'm right there with them. So I don't really want to put myself in an adversarial like evangelist mode here. That's just not right. But the reasons why I think it's going to be beneficial for farmers to be thinking about technology and about how they monitor their own fields and about participating with markets like Nori is that we need to figure out ways as a society to create more value streams for farmers than just like cheap commodity produce. When we only value cheap commodity produce, there's only ever reason for them to extract as much value as possible. And farmers get that. If there's other value streams, such as somebody could pay you for your data and someone can pay you for your carbon, then there's a real business case to start to shift your business model so that you're behaving in such a way that you're A, creating quality data, and B, stewarding the landscape for higher carbon content. And both of those things, interestingly enough, and the way that region network is structured, add up to them being able to make better management decisions to increase the quality and yield of their crops as well. So what we're asking is not that people like sacrifice or make, you know, a hard decision per se. What we're asking is that we all look for the win-win solutions and concentrate on those in order to build out a more robust living economy. I don't know. I'm satisfied with that answer. I totally agree with what you're saying. I think that when we're talking about this sort of thing, when you're starting a new business in a totally new way, and you're trying to like 
completely change an industry, you don't go after your fiercest critics first. Those aren't your first customers. You go after the people who want to support what you're doing. And then you use them as evidence to say that, look, this is working. This is something that can provide real value to you. Now, maybe you might want to try it because there are other people who have gone in first. What's the name of that curve where you got the the, the, curve? the pioneer and then the early adopter the and then the and then yeah, you know, the, and then the general exactly. sort of public and then you have the recalcitrant, you know, I'm never gonna do this, and then the people who like are super conservative and yeah. Anyway. This has been a great podcast. I think it's it's exciting as our relationship blossoms together. I think to Paul's point, starting with those who believe in this possibility and are willing to suspend disbelief to say, let's try this system. And I think it it's pretty obvious that as Nori advances and as Regen Network advances, we can set something up that has people paying for pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, and it's a data query in your system. Using that as evidence to dramatically expand and scale on both fronts, I just think is going to be really exciting. Yeah, totally. It's super exciting. I mean, I have to say, I'm kind of jealous because the one ton equals one ton equals one ton in the soil or however is just great simple marketing material and i'm yeah. i'm talking about a whole new vestigial organ of humanity and it's like it's just man but <laughs> that was intentional all right get him a complimentary a thesaurus yeah. and uh, <laughs> we'll see you next time thanks guys thank you